today uh, going to begin a series of sermons on the book of Judges um, under the title of Flawed People but Faithful God. Why, why would we read this book in the Old Testament, one of the more difficult books <clears throat> of the Old Testament together? Why would we seek to spend some time looking at it? Well, the reason we turn to the book of Judges, one reason, and the reason that Christians have always looked at it is because it's in the Bible. Um, because of something we believe about the Bible, that actually the Bible is the revelation of God and God's work and what God is doing in us and also in his world. It's kind of like why we read the Bible. It's because if you want to know God, if you want to know more about him, you need to read the Bible. It's as simple as that. But of course, sometimes it's not as easy as that because the Bible can be a little complicated. So we read it together and in interpreting it and trying to work out how does that work for us. Well, we begin to read the story of Judges. Why would 21st century Christians read something that's written about a group of people that lived 1,200 years before Christ, 3,000 years ago? We're not Jewish. We are so far removed. But actually, in reading the book of Judges, one of the interesting things that happens is, <clears throat> and I think partly because it's such brilliant, brilliant literature, but one of the things that happens is you find yourself looking at a mirror and you see yourselves there. And it's like divided by 3,000 years, but you find yourself there again and you recognize the responses, you recognize the reactions, and you see it in yourself. So we read the book of Judges because we want to find out something about God, but we read the book of Judges because actually we're we recognizing something about ourselves. And then the third question, why are we in Salford Elim <laughs> reading it and spending quite a lot of time on it over the autumn in 2016? What does it offer us? Well, I think one of the reasons that we choose to read it at this time is because lots of us know how easy it is to hold the name of Christian and yet actually feel the passion for God to begin to slip. You retain the name, but everything, life, surroundings just press in and it kind of becomes, yeah, I'm a Christian, but... I've got to deal with all this stuff first. And one of the things in the book of Judges that we'll find over the weeks is actually one of the things they struggled with was the passion they had for the God who loved them. And God wrestles with his own people. And he still does. God still wrestles with us to say, I want your heart. I want your whole heart. I want you to be mine. I want you to live for me. So why would we read the book of Judges? Well, because it's in the scripture and we want to know about God. Why? Because it's like a mirror. It tells us something about ourselves. Why would we be wanting to do it today? Because I know the temptation to hold the name, but actually to become the same as everybody else. And as we read the book of Judges, what we'll do is we'll see the consequence of that as it flows out. At this point, I'd like to say to Paul and Connie, this is going to be the best series we've ever preached in this church. It's a shame you're going to miss it just by a few weeks. <laughs> when you start to, uh, on, a, on a book that perhaps you've not read for ages or you perhaps have never read, 
then what you need is an overview. And uh, I found a website, I came across a website a little while ago that I think is absolutely brilliant. It's a website that is called The Bible Project. I would heartily recommend it to all of you. If you want to know what individual books of the Bible are about, or indeed what the whole story is about, this website has done an absolutely fantastic job of putting together an overview of a book of the Bible in about six to eight minutes. And it tells you the story. So rather than me tell you what the story of the whole Judges is, I thought I'd show this brilliant film. I hope you appreciate it. But um, uh, we'll, we'll show you the film against the Milky Way. The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the promised land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter one gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now, the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. 
The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a god and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them, he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore. And that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah, who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is the result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel 
has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of 1 Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. It's going to be a lot of fun, isn't it? <laughs> Very good. <clears throat> if you were able to follow it. And uh, the, 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 as I said, the website does that with a lot, all, lots of the books of the Bible. So if you, you can't get a grip of what you're reading, that's a really good place to go. So is this going to be, is it, how are we going to, how are we going to regard this? Well, let's begin. And uh, just for a few minutes this morning. This is how the book begins. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I've given the land into their hands. So we begin by reading. And, and as the, it was on the film, you pick up and the first sort of references after the death of Joshua. So you're already in this middle of this story, really. The story about how God gave a land to people and Joshua had taken them into the land. You know the story of Joshua. Joshua faced the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. And you read the book of Joshua and it makes you feel like, well, this was easy. But actually, when you read the book of Judges, what you realize is this is not easy. That actually the land that God had given them would not just be easy to take, but it would involve fighting. I'll come to fighting in a moment. Josh, uh, and, and when they asked who's to go first, the Lord said, Judah, one of the tribes, the southern tribe, they go, I've given the land into their hands. And you, you begin to get this feel that this story that we're going to be involving ourselves in is a story of a people, a people of migration, a people looking for a land, a people looking for a place where they will be able to live in safety. But of course, when you read the land and you see about the land, those of you that have read the Old Testament a bit, you know the land was never just somewhere to live. It was like this spiritual barometer. It was a gift. It starts here in Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, Ur, of the Chaldees, your people, your father's household, to the land, I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And they set out for the land of Canaan and the Lord said to your offspring, I'll give this land. That's where the story begins with the land, Genesis chapter 12. And if you remember enough, you remember that Genesis 1 to 11 is a story of the whole world. And by chapter 11, the whole world are going, we're going to do this without God. We'll build a tower as high as we can. We'll call it Babel. We won't need God. And what does God do when the whole world rejects him? What does he do? He says to one man, one couple, one family, I'm going to give you a land. Will you trust me? To a couple who are older, they don't have children, they can't have children, to your offspring. 
I'll give you a land. To someone who doesn't have a home, doesn't have a family, God says, I'll do the impossible. And so the story becomes, well, why does God want to give a land to a people? Well, one of the reasons is because he wanted to demonstrate what does it look like when a people live under the hand of God? What's it look like when our relationships are right? So one of the things that uh, God will tell these people when you get the land, be careful how you treat the poor. Because all around you, the poor, well, they just get a really rough deal. But when you're in the land, how do you deal with the poor? You deal with the poor differently. How do you deal with laws? How do you deal with women? How do you deal with children? How do you deal with the nuts and bolts of life? Because you will be the light to the whole world. You will show people. This was the promise of the land. You'll show people what it means to live under God's rule. That was always the desire for land. And of course, we know that God will wrestle with his people throughout the Old Testament about the land. And when things are going well, the land produces and is fruitful. But when the people of God, they, they go, well, of course, we, of course we worship Yahweh. Of course we worship Jehovah. Of course we worship God. But we'd like to be a little bit like our neighbours. Ultimately, they'll lose the land. They'll go into exile. So this is a story about Joshua and about land. And you can't get around it. As the film said, this is a story about fighting and about Canaanites. Well, who were the Canaanites? Well, the Canaanites were an empire, really. And uh, if you can imagine the sort of, if you want to look at a map later, you'll see where Israel is now. And, but it's kind of stretched, the Canaanite Empire stretched from the sort of southern part, almost Egypt, all the way up where Israel is now, all the way up to, to Lebanon and then up to Syria. It's like, like that whole coastal area of, uh, of the ancient Near East. And the Canaanites were a people who kept assimilating other people. So they'd take over other areas and then they'd make them into their own type. Uh, as a civilization, Canaanites had been around sort of like for at least 400 years before the Book of Judges, about 1600. They were exporters of purple cloth, which was like luxury um, linen and uh, clothing. They were. They had a sophisticated a form of mathematics. They were sophisticated at producing papyrus and writing. They were kind of like, it was a proper, proper empire. They were a world empire of the day. The book of Judges will keep coming back and say, the problem with Canaan is not actually all of that. The problem with Canaan is they worship a false god and that leads to atrocity. Who of us is going to first to fight? It's kind of interesting that what in this very first verse of this new book, the people of God are going to God as though God is the commander in chief. Most religious people, and, I'm, and we're all cautious about this, because religious people who have power sometimes are really worrying. Yeah? Because it's like they claim that God validates their actions. But here it's kind of different. It's like the people of God go to the Lord and say, what should we do now? 
And the Lord says, I want you to go, Judah, you go first and fight. Now, there is a sort of an image then um, that some people have that, well, what's going on now is that these sort of Israelites are going in with AK-47s to these poor, poor Canaanites and just absolute massacring him. It's absolutely the opposite way around, really. It's like a David and Goliath situation. The Israelites were a poor, wandering, homeless people. They didn't have the force. They didn't have the power. And yet they're called to go. It's almost like someone's written this. Let me read it. It's almost though God says, I chose the weakest, most helpless nation. And I want to show the ancient world that this is who I am. The rightful ruler of the world who will stand up for the exploited and the oppressed. We who live within the big story have lived with the beginning of this. This is God's world. This is God's world. You don't get to do what you like with it. That's why some of you, and I've had lots of conversations with different ones of you, some of you get so upset about Syria because however you articulate it, deep down you go, it shouldn't be like this. You can't watch the BBC News of Syria and see what's happened in Aleppo and go, well, fair enough, it's Syria, it's their own business. None of us sit there and go, well, if that's what they want to do with their own country, that's fine. That's why the whole world is outraged. That's why America and Russia this weekend have said, let's have a peace process. Because nobody in the world says, well, it's your land, you do what you want with it. Because all of us watch on and go, it is not right what happens in Aleppo. Where does that come from? Well, the Bible says it comes from a deep-rooted belief that this is God's world. You can't bomb the innocent and think you're going to get away with it. Can you? You can't treat people like that and for it to be okay. The language of fighting in Judges is about driving out. Drive out the Canaanites. This is not just because you need your own space. It's not like you just need a, a country of your own to so get rid of the rest. It's actually what they've done is so wrong. Would any of you think it's wrong to drive out the regime in Syria that's done Aleppo? We might disagree about how. But do any of you think, no, let's leave it, it'll be fine. No. It's kind of like the language of what do you do? What does the, you know, this sounds so crass now, but it's kind of like you, you're seeing hooligans wreck your garden. You go, oh, that's okay, never mind. No, you drive them out. It's as if you're a landlord and you see your tenants wrecking a house, your house. Do you say, well, that's okay. No, you drive them out. Or... You're a prophet in the temple and you see people who've made the temple into something that was never designed to be and you take a whip and you overturn tables and you say, no. It's kind of like, this is what God is wanting to do. And so the first chapter, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter because actually it's, it's difficult to read it out loud without you being able to see in front of you a map of well, what's going on and who's who. 
and I've not really got time for all of that. I'll do that on another occasion. But the, the whole chapter begins, and in the half of the first chapter is they're successful, and the second half is that they're not successful. And what happens is the people who God says, I want you to sort this land out, they decide in the end, we can't. They're too big. They're too strong. We'll live with them. And the second chapter begins like this. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt. I led you into the land that I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I'll never break my covenant with you. You shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you'll break down their altars. And yet you've disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I've also said, I will not drive them out before you. They'll become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. And when the angel of the Lord has spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud and they called that place Bokim, which just means weeping. That's what the word means. And there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. What did God say? God said, I've promised I'll never break my covenant with you. That's a really good news, isn't it? I'll never break my covenant with you. A covenant is that agreement. It's stronger than a contract. It's a covenant is, I absolutely tell you, you're mine. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That's the covenant. And that's how God begins this. I will never break my covenant with you. But at the same time, I then, the flip side of that is, don't you make a covenant with all that stands against me. It's kind of like you can't have it both ways. You can't stand on the fence. You can't say, I want God plus. And you break down their altars. You didn't. You lived with false religion. And, and again, the Bible story is this. The, the deep sense of wrong comes from the things you worship. And when you worship wrong, I'm not talking about, you know, do you, do, you, do you have a sheet in front of you or not a sheet? Do you, you know, I'm not talking about that sort of stuff. I'm talking about who do you worship? And if we worship at the, the altar of, of might, if we worship at the altar of money, if we all, all that sort of stuff, you'll get shaped by it. And it's very difficult to worship Jesus too. You've got to choose who you're going to stand with. And you've disobeyed me. And so what does God say? How does this story set up? God says, well, I'm not going to drive them out for you. You'll have to live with the consequence of your choice now. You have to live with the consequences of your choice. In fact, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 19, the people had said, we can't. They're too strong but in chapter 2, verse 3, God is saying, two, in verse 2, God is saying, it's not that you can't, it's that you won't. It's not that you can't, it's that you won't. You say, we can't be different. We can't operate differently. And God says, that's not how I see it. Well, time's true. The rhythm remains. The rhythm remains for us, for you, for me. And it works out in many different ways, but amongst the ways it works out is like this. 
Temptations come and you say, I can't resist. And this is going to sound a little hard. And God says, no, you won't resist. That's the problem. The bitterness that comes because you say, I can't forgive. And God says, no, it's just that you won't. The anger at the present, because you're so angry about how things are right now, because you can't hope. And maybe it's because we won't. The frustration, because I can't love. Or maybe it's because I won't. The half-hearted discipleship that says, I can't follow wholeheartedly. Maybe actually the problem is we won't. And it spills out. This is a writer, Lisa Turkus, not really aware of much of her books, but I came across this quote. Raw emotions, anger, frustration, bitterness, resentment are the feelings we tend to hide from people we want to impress, but we spew on those that we love the most. It spills over. And then sometimes we weep because we recognize, oh, we've been so wrong. And we weep like they did at Bokim. It's not enough. <laughs> it's not enough just to be kind of regretful. And that's the story we're going to find. Because actually it's not enough just to feel bad about yourself. That's like a cul-de-sac of just guilt and frustration. Actually, it's knowing what we're saying yes to. And what we're saying no to. And there's something about the book of Judges that calls me back. And as I'm reading it and trying to wrestle with it and work it out. I'm hearing that 3,000 years ago God had said, look, I want you to do this. You can do this. I'm going to give it to you. It will involve your effort. It will involve your time. It will involve you being engaged with this. But I want to do something here and I want to use you. And the people of Judges, in the book of Judges, and this is a really simplistic reading, but the, book of, in, the people in the book of Judges, at least initially, are going, it's too hard. Can't do it. And God's saying, no, I've told you you can. I'm giving you what you need. And the people are going, no, it's too hard. And I'm reading it through my own eyes then. And I'm hearing Jesus say to me, will you follow me? And make me Lord of all of your life. Not just part of it. Not just sort of Sunday life. Not just the religious bit. But the whole of life. And then that temptation within each of us to go, yeah, but it's quite difficult, isn't it? It's kind of hard. And God said, no, I've given you all that you need for this. I've given you all you need for a life that will please me. Will you live here? And just as it was for the book of Judges. People who know what they're saying yes to. But at the same time then, we know what we're going to say no to. And the no is, in the book of Judges, the simple no is this. I don't want to be the same as everybody else. But I know how tempting it is. I don't want my reactions to be the same as everybody else. I don't want my responses to be the same as everybody else. But I know how easy it is. I know my own heart. It's the only way to a full life with the Spirit. Not guilt when we think we've got it wrong 
and we spewed over other people all of those emotions. But actually, that sense of, I want to follow you. I hear your call, and I want to follow you. I want to turn away from an old way of life, and I want to follow Jesus. I want him to be Lord. I want him to have the claim on my life. That's how the book of Judges begins. I read it because it's in the Bible and I want to know that God. The God who is not always easy. I read it because I can see it as a mirror to me. And I read it because we need the passion again of knowing the Lord and being faithful as disciples. Guys, do you want to come back? Susie prepares to lead us through. As Susie prepares to lead us through to communion. Communion is a great place for you to get serious in your business with God. Communion is a place where Jesus says, I will make a new covenant with you. I'll include you in. You're mine. But when you come then, you you don't want to be coming saying, yeah, but I'm coming to receive that, but I'm, I'm holding on to all the other stuff of my old life. It's coming and saying, yes, Lord, I'm yours. Yes, Lord, I'm yours. It's not always easy, but yes, Lord, I'm going to follow. It's not always straightforward, but yes, Lord, I'm going to be yours. And you come with the situations in your own life that sometimes you know you've left God out of because it's too difficult to leave God in. Lord, we come to you this morning and we lay our lives down before you. We want to do that anyway. We want to live faithful lives. We want to live lives that are passionate for you. We want to live lives that are open to you. We want to live lives that are whole lives with you. Lord, forgive us for the times when we've wanted you plus something else. Lord, may we choose to serve you this morning in the name of Jesus.